Our scripture text this morning is Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 33. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, he might be, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You know, we're pressing on in the midst of many of the crises we face with COVID-19, and of course with the crises of the um, death of George Floyd. I don't want to appear tone deaf uh, as we press on with the Sermon on Marriage. Uh, these situations are times for us to lament, to, to appeal to God for mercy, for help, for grace. What do we do? How do we handle it, Lord? Asking for mercy to be a light in a very dark place. Um, it's, it's really not unrelated to our text, actually. Uh, the home is the place that God has given where love and justice and mercy are to be taught. And it's, it's in the home that are led by a mother and father submitted to God. And, and as the family is the smallest unit of society, as that is built up and strengthened, uh, then so does society, um, so is society impacted. So um, that's what we want to press on. You know, the understanding of marriage is uh, significant. And this really applies to all of us. You know, because the culture has kind of lost its way in terms of what marriage is. Uh, very, very confused over, kind of indifferent. Recent Pew Research poll came up with 39% of people uh, consider marriage to be obsolete, kind of unnecessary. Uh, some within society want to consider it more antagonistically in terms of it's you know, unnecessary, it's unhelpful, restrictive, binding. And yet here we think that God has a clear word to give us on, on husband, wife, family dynamic. That's why we want to learn about marriage. That's why we want to periodically teach on the nature of marriage. Not just for the confusion in the culture, uh, but really it's fundamental to society. I mean, all of us at some part have a mother, and we all have mothers and fathers. We all have parents at one point. And, uh, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a relationship that, uh, yeah, it dominates society. And so we want to try to understand it. And, and it is for unmarrieds as well to understand marriage. And Tim Keller the, was the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in Manhattan. His most listened to series was on marriage. And that was in a church that had a majority of singles. We want to know what God has to say on marriage. The church is filled with marrieds and unmarrieds. We want to understand what it is. You know, the, the, um, all of us will be, we were born single, we'll probably 
end single, many of us will end single, we spend much of our life. So it's important to understand, because the church is made up of both marrieds and unmarrieds, that we understand what marriage is. You know, ultimately, marriage, or I should say marriage is not the ultimate point, but it's Christ. And it's our union with him in marriage. And this is what we're going to learn today. And then lastly, the other reason I think that is helpful to consider marriage is that it teaches us about the love of Christ. I mean, God's redemptive plan is summed up in Jesus Christ. And, and all through the scriptures, God uses imagery of marriage to describe God's relationship with his people. And so we want to understand it so we can better understand the love of Christ. And not just the love of Christ, but the love of the church. Christ loves his church. And for us to say we love Christ and not love his church seems a bit of an oxymoron. We love what he loves, and he loves the church. Uh, so I, I think we, we do well uh, to look at it a little more intimately. Now, last week we looked at Genesis 2. We looked at the design that God had for marriage, where the father, where the the uh, man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Well, in Ephesians, what we're looking at today, Paul is giving us instruction about how to achieve that oneness. And he's gonna, we're going to begin with the man and the responsibilities of the man. But I, I want you to understand this within the bigger picture. You know, Martin Luther called these the household code or the household rules. In other words, Paul is giving instruction to relationships within the Christian community. Now, all of this follows chapter 1, where we hear that Christ has been crucified, he's been raised, he's ascended, and now he is seated at the right hand of God, far above all role, authority, and power, and dominion for the church. And so it's out of this new cosmic reality that Jesus Christ is recreating all things. He's making all things new. And so Paul naturally says, this is the effect of this new creation upon relationships. He begins with the husband and the wife, and then parents and children, and then, of course, employees and employers. This is the way it's supposed to look. This is the new marriage. So we'll begin with the responsibilities of men. Now, you heard in the text, as Melanie read, it's a pretty simple idea. Husbands, love your wives. He says it three times. And so we're going to look at it from three angles. Husbands, love your wives. Uh, the first angle we're going to look at is the love being sacrificial. It's a sacrificial love. Look back with me at verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wives. Now, we all nod in agreement to this. We all agree. That's oh, a good thing. You ought to have love in a marriage. You have love stories, we love love songs, we love movies about love. It makes sense to us. But I want you to know it wouldn't have made sense to them. It was expected that a man would rule his wife, but not love her. I mean, is there any reason, any other reason, why Paul spends eight verses on the man? Marriage was seen, men had great freedom, particularly sexual freedom. Women did not. In fact, Socrates, probably 350 years before, says, Is there anyone to whom you entrust more serious matters than to your wife? And is there anyone to whom you talk less? Well, we, we don't see in this time and in this context, marriage wasn't seen as a loving relationship, functional relationship, but not loving relationship. And so he says, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives, is what he says. Now, he doesn't leave open to us an interpretation about how to love. You know, we can come up with all kinds of ways to love. He gives us some clear definitions. And this is the point of comparison that he draws with Christ. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her. So what Paul's doing is he's reminding us that uh, a love that a husband is to have for his wife is to be marked by a sacrifice, sacrificial love. Now, of course, we see this in the gospel, don't we? Jesus Christ takes upon himself flesh and lives among us. He bears our sins. He bears our sins. He literally bears the curse from Genesis 3. And he dies for us to be reconciled to God. It's a sacrificial, it's a voluntary, it's a self-initiated love that Christ extends to us. You see the service rendered to us. Right on the night before he died in John chapter 13, we see a picture of this love when he he dresses himself as a servant and takes up the basin and washes the feet of his disciples. This is the kind of love, this sacrificial, laying down right, self-giving, self-denying, for the benefit of the other. Now, most husbands in here will never be asked to lay down their physical lives, but it does speak to laying down our daily lives, the daily interests, the loves, the passions that we have. So, so what will this love look like for us? You know, when we kind of take this text and we apply it to our own lives, well, clearly, a husband's love is to be active, not passive, and not waiting for the right conditions to love. It, there's an active unilateral move to express love to the wife in very real terms. It, it, it's, it's active and self-initiated, not simply in response to what we think they should do. It's a sacrificial love. It's holding down a job that you may not like to provide for your family. It's maybe putting the priority or prioritizing her needs above your own as an expression of love. It might be to get over the awkwardness of praying with our wives and lifting them up before God so that they can hear us pray for them. It may be as simple as helping out on Sunday morning, getting kids ready for church, to make the transition from the home to the church, which really can be a horrible experience, a little bit smoother. I mean, these these are ways of just, it could be just turning away from uh, from something that you see on the computer screen that will lead you to lust, being faithful with your eyes. You know, in 1 John chapter 3, he says, this is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us. There's that self-denying. So men, when you're at home, It's to be engaged. It's not to be constantly in front of the computer screen or computer games or sports. It's to be actively looking to engage wife, children, family in a way that is for their benefit. Now, men, this may be a point of repentance for you. You may be looking back right now and thinking with some degree of conviction how you have not done that. Well, that is the gift of God to give to us this idea of repentance, that we can repent of where we fail. Don't just cast dust on your head and sit there in silence. No, repent before God. Ask him for grace. And ladies, wives, can I encourage you to pray for your husbands in this? Don't use this sermon as a stick with which to whack them. Did you hear what Tom said? Did you hear what Tom said? I mean, he'll just end up not liking me. Or the church. So pray for him on this. You know, many of you, many of you, I want to give you a picture of this love. You know, Robertson McQuilkin, many of you know the name. He was president, longtime president of Columbia International University. It used to be Columbia Bible Seminary. 
You've been married from 48 to 78, 30 years of marriage, enjoyable marriage, served a number of years overseas. And his wife, Muriel, developed early Alzheimer's. And it was just a number of years later where he was put in a position of not maintaining his job or caring for her, and he resigned his position to care for her. He gave up a presidency of a nationally known seminary to care for her, which he did for more than a dozen years. Uh, but I was touched by, in his letter, when he resigned, he said these words. He said, it's clear to me that Muriel needs me now full-time. He says, my decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for her in sickness and health till death do us part. So as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it. But so does fairness. She's cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic. But there's more. I love Muriel. She's a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration, I don't have to care for her. I get to. It's a high honor to care for such a wonderful person. This is the nature of sacrifice. It may come to that. You may never be asked to do that. That's a picture of what it means to lay down your rights, to lay down those things that you think you need for the benefit of caring for your wife. So, so it's a sacrificial love. Secondly, it is a sanctifying love. It's a sanctifying love. You see this in 26 and 27. He says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So, so what he's saying here, Paul is saying that the husband is to love your wife with the purpose. It's a, in Greek, we call it a henoclaus, so that. In other words, there's a purpose to what he's doing. His love is to, for the purpose of her, the wife's, Holiness, sanctification, growth in love for God. That is what drives us to want to love our wives sacrificially, that they might see the beauty of Christ in our sacrificial love, and they be drawn to love Christ more. Now you notice Paul again, he keeps interweaving the responsibilities of the husband with what Christ does for the church. And I want to bring that together at the end of the sermon. But again, he does it here. He shows us, he reminds us, he brings before our face the beauty of the gospel. That, that here, Jesus Christ came to sanctify the church. It says, having cleansed her with water. Now, a lot of theologians think this may refer to baptism. You know, baptism is that symbol of cleansing, right? You come out of the water, the water runs off, reminding us that we've been forgiven. Our sins have been taken and paid for. The guilt associated with those, he bore it. And now we're cleansed, we're reconciled. We can now be adopted as children of God because we've been made right with God. This washing with water. It could refer, actually, to Ezekiel 16, this kind of bridal ceremonial washing where the bride washes herself before being married to her husband. That day of cleansing prior to the marriage. It could be referring to that. And when he says cleansing with water and the word, we know the word that Paul uses repeatedly in this book refers to the gospel. The gospel, hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, walking in faith to the gospel, is what assures us so that we will be without wrinkle, spot, or blemish. Uh, believing in it cognitively and then moving on with life, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give you that confidence. But continuing to walk in increasing measure, 
loving God and all that He's done for us in Christ. You know, you're leaving that, that wake of holiness behind you. That encourages us to one day we'll be there without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. That's what Christ has done. This is his labor. The labor of Christ is not one of them will be lost. I will move in your life through the power of the Spirit to bring you to a place of holiness, and it will be through the gospel. So the gospel is what purifies us, not as we even sang in the first song. It's not what you do makes you right with God. It's what he has done for you and for me. So th this, this idea of what he's done, what Paul does is he says, that purified us. So men, husbands, love your wives. You are the primary instrument, the primary instrument through which God's grace will come in sanctifying purposes for your wife. You don't make her holy, but God will use you as a means of grace in her life to grow in holiness so that as the years progress, you are readying her more and more to look to Christ as her groom. That, that's the call. Now, what does this look like in life for us? Well, it looks like men, husbands, you're looking to beautify the soul of your wife. You want to know what struggles are you having? What relational difficulties? What fears? What concerns? How can I pray for you? How can I call you to active faith in Christ? You want to have a degree of intimacy with her needs to be aware of, of where can you come to aid with the word and grace. It may look like just praying for them. You know, Jesus prayed for his church in John 17, but it says in Hebrews 7 that he continues to intercede for the church. Right now, he's interceding for us. You know, husbands, do your wives see you interceding for them? Do they hear you appealing to God? Do they hear your voice calling upon your Father in heaven for their good and for their spiritual growth in the grace of God, for their overcoming strength to confront the difficulties that they have. Do they see and hear you do this? It's not just seeking the beauty of the soul. It's not just in praying. It can be encouraging them in the word. Now, I'm not talking about a formal discipleship routine that you have with your wife. It can be in conversation. It can be driving in the car. It can be over dinner. We are just talking about the things that God is doing in your life or what God may be doing in their life. You may call them to faith if they're struggling. Not in some bold, heavy-handed way, but appealing to them to trust in the promises that God has given to us. Carol and I, when we were back overseas in missions, when money was a thing that we didn't hold on to long, it seemed to come and go, we would often just open the Bible to Matthew 6 and say, here's the promise he gives to us. We don't have to worry about these things. And we'd call each other to faith, helping each other, washing each other in a way with the word. That's what we're really talking about. But husbands, if you're not feasting on God, it's hard to furnish the food for your wife. If you're not enjoying the goodness of God, it's hard to declare the goodness. You feel duplicitous. Now, ladies, if your husband holds you by the hand tonight and he says, can I pray for you? Please don't say, you're only doing this because Tom told you to, which I've heard a number of times. Is it wrong for your husband to respond to instruction from the word? in obedience to God? Does his 
action after biblical instruction deny genuine motive? I don't think so. I encourage them in it. Encourage them in it. You know, it may surprise you to know that your husband may be a dynamo at the office and he may be Mr. Handyman in the home, uh, but we are very much intimidated by our wives' spirituality. Many of us are. Uh, I was very intimidated by Carol's spirituality. I, I used to think I can tower over her, but I had an intimidation over her knowledge of God and her love for God. And it took a while to, to get beyond that. Not that I feel that I'm over her necessarily, but I mean that sense of I can appeal. You know, sometimes we begin praying and we get worried we're going to do this literary one way into a dead end and not know how to get out. We feel foolish. We don't know what to say. We don't know where to go. We'll stumble over our words. Wives, these are things that, that intimidate many, many men. And so encourage them in it. Pray for them for it. So this love that he's speaking about, husbands, love your wives. He says it three times. He says it, love them sacrificially. Love, it in a, love them in a sanctifying way. Men, ask your wives if they need to know how you can help. Ask them. I have no doubt they'll be able to tell you. And then the last way that Paul seems to speak about this love is a tender love. It's a tender love. Look with me at 28 to 30. He says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. What Paul's calling for here is kind of this self-love. Now, we don't like self-love, and rightfully so, because we usually think of it as, I just love myself at the exclusion of others. I don't think this is what Paul's referring to at all. When he speaks about husbands, love your wives kind of as yourself, he's saying to the degree regarding how acutely you are aware of your own needs and the concerns that you have, with the same intensity, love your wife in the same way. He's really just following Jesus' words in Matthew 22, when Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, the neighbor is the point of comparison to know how to love, the intensity that we ought to love. But, but there's a little bit more. I think what he's saying here when he says love your own bodies is he's seeing that the husband and wife are really one flesh. And so for me to love my wife with the same intensity as I love myself actually serves the whole body. So, so, I mean, it would, be as, it would be as foolish as my right hand to be in opposition to my left hand. They work together. The husband and the wife are one body. And so he's encouraging us, no, love your wives with the same intensity. It's not wrong to love yourself. Just note how intense you are for yourself and bring that to your wife. Love her that deeply. Again, he draws this comparison you see there with uh, with Jesus when he says, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. That's the way you're to see that in loving your wife, you're really loving your body. Now again, what might this look like? Well, the two operative words there you see, he says about nourish and cherish. This is a way that husbands can love their wives, nourishing. That word for nourish is often used for like a mother feeding her child, taking care of her child that a mother is intimately aware of all the provisional and the material needs that this child has. 
And so husbands, you are looking to provide for your wives, of course with jobs, uh, but, but also you know, that forward thinking, where are we going in life? Both provision and protection is how you're to nourish them. It doesn't mean the woman's not involved. She may be paying the bills, she may be helping you in it, but you're initiating the conversations. And you're making sure these conversations happen so that she feels protected, that she's not trying to pay for, for something that she can't afford because we're not perhaps spending habits that you have, haven't freed up so that she feels protected. And this is not just material, it's spiritual, spiritual protection. But it's more than that, right? Many men do that. Many husbands do seek the material provision of their wives and their families. But remember, farmers do that with animals. They do make sure that the physical protection and provision of the animals is there. Notice the second word is cherishing. Uh, that, that, the, that the way to love, as we love, is to cherish them. And this word is used in the Old Testament oftentimes for a bird that, that, is, that is keeping the eggs warm that they might develop fully and hatch. There's an intimacy there's a deep awareness of the unique needs, like that bird to the egg, that the husband ought to have to the wife. That you are aware of what her deepest fears are. Not just the circumstances that plague her. You know, oftentimes in Christian circles, we'll share, share about in a circle what's going on. We'll share the circumstances that we're struggling with. But we never share with the emotions that we have over those circumstances. Uh, we don't know about each other's fears over those circumstances. I've got this problem and this problem, but what about your heart in those situations? That's what the man, husband is looking to know. You know, what are their most intimate needs, concerns, and fears? To cherish a wife is to do more than open a door, to give her first honor. Those things are appropriate and fine, but it involves time. You know, most couples spend less than five minutes a day in active conversation over the nature of their relationship. It takes time to know intimate details of another person's life. It isn't going to happen like that. It's not going to happen when you're just discussing the functional needs of the family. It, it, it takes time. Uh, cherishing involves words of admiration, words of thankfulness, appreciation. You are verbally encouraging your wife in the grace that you see in her life, both to her and in front of the children. It's an important way to, cher to cherish them. You're holding them up as uniquely valuable to you. You know, in the top five needs of men, sexual intimacy is in the top five. It's not for women. Sorry. 70-80% of a woman's need is non-sexual. So are we, are we aware of these things? And, and in what way are we cherishing them? Benjamin Warfield, B.B. Warfield, was a great theologian at Princeton in the end of the 20th century and died in, the, I think, 1915. Uh, but he got married to his wife. They went on honeymoon to, um, uh, to Leipzig, Germany, and they were hiking in the mountain and came upon a fierce thunderstorm. And uh, tragically, she was struck with lightning and slowly became an invalid, which he had to care for for 38 years. He wanted to go into the pastorate. He stayed in the world of academics, which we're thankful for many of the things he wrote, but uh, he had to care for her, and he chose that path because he couldn't be away from her for more than two hours. Only one time, I think, that when he gave a conference, actually at Bible Seminary, Columbia Bible Seminary, did he leave her for more than two hours. 
He stayed in the academic world because he could, after each class, go make care of her. Again, many of you won't be asked to do this. I'm just trying to give you examples of the power of the gospel through the Spirit of God that we can love this sacrificial, this sanctifying, and this tenderly way. So, so that's really the, the point of what Paul's saying. Love your wives. Uh, husbands, love your wives sacrificially and love them sanctifyingly and love them in tender ways. What's it all about, though? Uh, I mean, wh what's the instruction for? And that's what we see in 31 to 33. We really see the goal of this. What's the point of the command? Why do I need to do this? We could ask the apostle. And he's going to simply say this, that in your marriage, you are displaying a cosmic mystery. You are revealing a mystery that has been hidden in the ages. Look what he says in 31. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, you must understand that the word mystery, we always use it for something that's baffling, that we can't, kind of defies explanation, a UFO, you know, you don't know what it is. In the Bible, it's not usually used that way, particularly by the Apostle Paul. And in the letter of Ephesians, the word mystery would be something that is yet to be revealed. It's a truth established, but not yet seen. So it can be. You know, the sun not seeming to be in the sky at night, yet in the morning it's revealed as the earth turns. It's always there, but you just don't see it. And what Paul's doing when he dips back into Genesis 2.24 is he's saying that the union between the husband and wife, now, the union, or I should say back in 2.24, that union where they were naked and they were unashamed, when they were together and they were one, in that union there was a mystery that was not known through the Old Testament. But it was made known, it was revealed at the coming of Christ. In other words, the marital union in Genesis 2.24, that the two shall become one, prefigured or foreshadowed a greater union. It was pointing to the union that would become one, which is Christ in the church. That's what he's saying here. And this is the way Paul uses the mystery in chapter 1. Now, now, I want you to hang with me here, because this is really cosmic here. This is really, really a big deal. In chapter 1, Paul writes these words. He says, that he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. This is God. God has made known to us the mystery of his will. God has a will. He has a purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Now remember, God sent a son born of a woman. In the fullness of time, God did this. So at the revelation of Christ, it says, in the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So God's big plan for the redemption of the world is to, in Christ, Unite all things, make them all one, that we would be with God again. Remember, in Genesis 2, walked in the cool of the day, husband and wife, one flesh, in union with each other and with God, no shame, no sin, no separation. Sin comes in Genesis 3, the union's torn asunder. None of us have known the intimacy of being naked and unashamed. And so in Christ now, he's summing up all things. Christ is the pinnacle of the work of God. And what Paul is saying here 
is that our marriages are now reflecting that. That God's plan to redeem all things, and we'll experience this all at the consummation, the return of Christ, all things will be summed up in Christ. Now our marriages are to reflect that glorious work of the gospel to the world. The irony here is that this is a strong word to the unmarried. This is a huge word to the unmarried. Why do I say that? Well, because marriage is an ultimate. Christ is. I mean, our marriages now, they're temporal. They're only temporal. But, and they're to be pointing to something. So all the unmarried should read this text and rejoice. I have Christ, the groom. The whole plan is not about being married. The plan is about being wed with Christ, united with God, through the power of the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean our earthly marriages are unimportant. They are significant. God has chosen to use these as a means of declaring his redemptive work through the husband and wife. That's what your marriages are to display. Now, listen, all of your marriages display something. They are displaying something. What are they displaying? It would be a good dinner conversation tonight. What do you think my love for you displays? They display something. Now, if you're a husband here, I, I imagine this might be like a bit of an F-18 ride, you know, that military jet. It's kind of exhilarating. You're going so fast through the sky, and you may be passing out periodically because of the G-force that you're feeling when it takes off. This is exhilarating in the sense that the way I love Carol, the way I demonstrate my love, sacrificially and sanctifyingly, I am part of God's cosmic plan to declare his redemptive work to the world. In some small measure, no doubt, but my marriage is displaying that great work of God. And that can be daunting. It can cause you to lose your breath when you think about it. Sacrifice, like denying myself. It's the last thing this guy wants to do, yet I'm called to do it. And that's why Ephesians 5 follows 1, 2, and 3 where, where we've heard about the power of the gospel to save. In chapter 2, you hear that you've, you were dead, but he made you alive in Christ. He's set you in the heavenlies. He's appointed works for you to do before time even began. In chapter 3, he's going to give you a power. He's going to be able to do things beyond what you can even ask or think or imagine. And not just do we have the power of the gospel. When I'm saying that, I'm not saying a cognitive understanding of the gospel. I'm saying active belief that if Christ is at the right hand of God, then I can walk in a sacrificial manner. But not only did he give us the gospel to save us, he's given us the spirit of God. If you look in chapter 5, 18, he says, be filled with the spirit. Don't underestimate that. To be filled with the Spirit is enabling us to do things that we think are impossible. Look at Peter. Peter's a classic example of someone who's timid and running away, and yet he's filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, and he gets up and preaches. He's a changed man. Because he resolved to do better? No. Because the Spirit of God was dwelling within him, working out his plan. So men, don't be overwhelmed. Maybe it's a point of repentance for us where we fail. But let's renew ourselves in the power of the gospel, asking to be filled with the Spirit. Seek to be filled. Ask Him, Father God, fill me with your Spirit that I may operate and live in a manner that would display your redemptive glory to my wife and to all those watching. Ladies, let me encourage you to pray for your husbands in this. Encourage the slightest measure of grace that you see and the slightest effort 
encourage it, you are building up what work God is doing in their lives. And then to those who are struggling in marriage, you, you may be sitting right now and say, this, this will never be me. Uh, you don't know how many years this has not been my lot. And I grieve for you on that because God has appointed marriage to be this way and it's not for many, even in the church. And can I just ask you to appeal to God to give you, let those longings remain. Not just that God might yet do a work in the life of your husband, but that those longings would result in a greater love for Christ, a greater zeal to see him face to face. When he sums up all things in the Son, remember marriage is not ultimate. Christ is in our relationship to him. So let's take a moment now and consider this sacrificial, sanctifying, and tender love. And what we do here is that let's just, we're silent before God. You have heard the word of God. I'm trusting in the spirit. When Carol and I walk around, every Saturday we take a walk and we pray for you. And we pray specifically that in these next 30 seconds, God's spirit is going to apply this truth to your souls. So let's just speak with God. It may be a point of confession. It may be an appeal for grace. But I'm trusting the Spirit of God to do only the work that He can do in your souls, giving you hope, maybe. Ladies, hope and encouragement, a longing for Christ. Men, courage and stamina, again, to persevere. And then I will pray for us in a minute. Thank you.